They will have no children's message, and the children will just be able to go with their leaders to their individual class time. All right, so the children leave them with their leaders to be able to go with their little particular study time. And for us in here today, we're going to return to 2 Samuel. Today, we're going to lead into 2 Samuel chapter 12. So today, we're going to find out, if you will, in our story that we've been dissecting for many, many weeks, we're going to have a conclusion. We're going to have an ending. We're going to have the rest of the story to the adulterous affair of David and Bathsheba. Now, many of you know we started dissecting this account in 2 Samuel chapter 11 many, many weeks ago. I and mean, approximately a month ago, we found ourselves in 2 Samuel 11, and we began to look upon the actions of David. You may remember very early in the account, we know that David is at home. He's not at war with the rest of his men. And while he's at home, he takes an afternoon nap. And he comes and he wakes up, he walks up on the rooftop, and he sees from the distance a woman bathing. It's not just any woman. Her name is given to us as Bathsheba. Now David then sees Bathsheba upon the horizon and inquires about her. He's told from one of his servants that she is married to a man named Uriah. Nonetheless, David seeks her. She comes to him. They have a night together ultimately to find out for both of them that she is going to be with child with David's child. Now, at that point, we recognize in our dissection in 2 Samuel chapter 11 with David that he could have one or two things. He could have come clean, confessed, admitted his sin, get right before God, or he could have went into cover-up mode. David chose to deny it all and to go into cover-up. But David's cover-up plan didn't work out exactly like he hoped it would. You may remember in 2 Samuel 11 that he invited Uriah to come back from war, from the battlefield, to be at home, wanting Uriah to be with Bathsheba. His plan was that Uriah would be with Bathsheba, his wife, and it would look like it would be Uriah's child. But it kind of backfired. It didn't work. Because you remember Uriah was a righteous man. He said to David, if it's not right for me to be with my wife when all the other men are at the war, I will stay at the doorstep of David. So David's plan didn't work as he hoped. So he had to come up with another plan. Remember it told us in 2 Samuel chapter 11 verses 14 and 15, his second idea, his backup plan if you will, was to actually hand Uriah a note of his death sentence. Look in verse 15. The note that David gave to Uriah to give to Joab, the command of the army, said, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Uriah carried that note to Joab. And Joab did precisely as David had instructed. In verse 16, it says Joab was besieging the city. The battlefield is there. The war is going on. At that time, the note said to assign Uriah to the place. He did so where he knew the rebellious men, where the battle was the most severe. Well, then as expected, we find in verse 17 that Uriah died. Along with many other innocent men. 
That was David's plan to rid himself of the actual sin that he committed, adulterous affair with Bathsheba. He had that sin. He kept going into cover-up mode. He kept denying it all. So he ultimately had murder upon Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba. So the underlying question was looming still for us to conclude, to consider today, to have the rest of the story, is what happens next. Is David about to get by with this? Is David's actions initially lust, filled with the action of taking Bathsheba, being with her, having child, and then denying it all, covering it up, and committing murder, is he about to get by with this? This is what we talk about today as we venture into 2 Samuel chapter 12, and we examine the story to get the rest of it, and of course some applications as we prepare to conclude. Now one thing before we begin our reading is that we're not immediately going to go into 2 Samuel 12. We want to pick up a little more of the story that's written at the end of chapter 11. So we're going to start in verse 22 of chapter 11, read through verse 27, and then we'll get into chapter 12 eventually. So we're going to read it in segments. So don't worry about standing today. We're going to read it in segments. It's not all at one time. Let's just look in the text. Let's look in our Bibles. It's 2 Samuel chapter 11. And let's pick up the reading in verse 22 to see what's happening after Uriah has died with many other innocent men. So verse 22 says this then of chapter 11. So the messenger went, an unnamed messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field. But we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Verse 25, then David received the news he said to the messenger. Thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Now verse 26 transitions just a bit. It says, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning, the time of grieving was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing, look at the end, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Let us pray, and we'll continue. Father. We pray today, Lord, that you be with us, that your spirit will guide us and lead us with the message and will conclude a story pertaining to David. Lord, there's much we can learn from David. We've applied and learned much already. We pray, Lord, today that you'll lead us into a time we can be able to learn better about the situation we're unfolding. And as we're concluding, you'll give us yet another application from the account that we may know quite well pertaining to David and Bathsheba. Let's apply this last bit of message, Lord, into our lives today. So lead and guide and anoint this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. But note then as we go back and look at verses 22 through 27, 
that the unnamed messenger, his name is not important, but the unnamed messenger informs David of the details that's happened upon the battlefield. Essentially, many men have died. Uriah, of course, among them. But David responds to the messenger to tell Joab not to be troubled. He says, essentially, this is part of war. He goes further to say, not only is dying men on the battlefield a part of war, but Joab, press on. I mean, continue continue to charge. I mean, strengthen your attack and overthrow the city and the enemy forces. That suggests what we find in verses 22 through 27 as we continue the story. But note also that in these verses, 22 through 27, that the narrator or the author reveals that Bathsheba has learned of her husband's death and then subsequently grieves and mourns. And then, of course, after she has went through that time of mourning and grieving, which the proper time, if there is such a thing for grieving, would have been at that time seven days, or maybe some of the Old Testament counts up to 30. But regardless of the fact of the time frame, she's went through the proper time of grieving, and then David took her to be his wife. That's what's happening after the death of Uriah that we learned about in the first 17 verses of 2 Samuel chapter 11. So here's the question for us to consider at this moment. A bit rhetorical, but think about it. What do you think of David's reaction to the news he gets from the messenger? I mean, in the text we find in verses 22 through 27, which completes the 11th chapter, a chapter break is about to occur. We're about to transition and move on. But before we do so, what do you think about the reaction of David? I mean, he just heard the news of the death of Uriah and many other men. So when he receives that news, do you find any clue, anything in the text that tells us that he's a bit shocked? Or do you find that he is remorse? Or any hint of being sorrow? We don't seem to find those, but let's think about this too. What about the reaction of Bathsheba when she learns about the death of her husband? Think about the reactions of both David and Bathsheba. And how they react to the news they've heard. One commentary I was reading said it this way. David's response to the news was predictable. He told the messenger to tell Joab, that's the commander, in the circumstances such as war, life and death were matters of blind chance. His instruction back to Joab through the messenger was only to the siege of Rabbah be even more aggressive. Bathsheba soon learned of her husband's tragic death. After the customary time of mourning, which we said at least the seven days, maybe up to 30, she moved to the king's palace in time to bear their son. Look now. The Lord was displeased, however, and set events in motion that would trouble David till his death. Well, that last sentence in that particular commentary about the Lord being displeased with David is what we want to expand upon this morning. But before we do, let's not too quickly dismiss the reaction that we're noting here now of both David and Bathsheba. Because examine again and think about the reaction. 
And I think as we look at the reaction of David and Bathsheba, I think we can be more critical of David and of his actions. I mean, after all, David knows specifically, precisely, with detail, the plan that he had for Uriah. Recall again, he gave Uriah very specific instructions, gave a death sentence in his hand he is to carry back to Joab. In verse 15 of 2 Samuel 11, we've already noted once, but noted again, that Uriah was to be in the forefront of the hardest fighting, what was the most severe. Joab was to put him there and to draw back from him and just let Uriah die in the battle. David commanded this, so David knew this. So we can be more critical of David because he knows precisely what he planned for Uriah. But Bathsheba, I mean, Bathsheba has no idea of David's plot to kill her husband. So when she hears the news, we find that she laments. I mean, she's mourning, she's grieving, as would be expected. But David, as we look more critically at him, if you will, he seems to be going along with the denial in the cover-up mode. The commentary said his reaction is predictable. I would suggest, be bold enough to say, as a, a little more critical of David, that his reaction is flippant, maybe completely insensitive. Now, why would I maybe dare suggest that his reaction is insensitive, flippant, maybe even frivolous when he gets the news from the messenger? It's mostly because David, despite what we learn in 2 Samuel 11 and in 12, despite that, what we learn about him and his bad decision-making here in regards to his sin with Bathsheba, I mean, David really is not a bad person. He's not a bad man. I mean, when you learn about David early in the account of David's life, I mean, you learn that David is he's a person with feelings. I mean, he's loyal, he's honorable, seeming to do the right thing. I mean, such was the case you find very early when Saul was king and David was about to become the king. David befriended Saul's son, Jonathan. Saul intended to kill David, was jealous of David immensely. But David took an opportunity with Saul's son, Jonathan, and became the best of friends. So much so that David mourned and wept over Jonathan's death, which shows his sensitivity and his feelings. Even more than that, when before Jonathan had died and David was about to become king, you may remember that Jonathan and David had made an oath, a covenant together. They would take care of each other's family, especially for David. If he became the king, he would take care of Jonathan's family upon the time he became the king. So then when, of course, David learns of Jonathan's death, I mean, he immediately goes out to try to find if there's anyone within the house of Jonathan still remaining, and he finds of one, a lame person named Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son. He invites Mephibosheth to come into his palace and to dine with him and to stay and to live. So observe that David is, for the most part, despite what we learn here about him, is not a man of ill repute. He's not bent on being evil continually. He's he's not 
He's not wicked. I mean, he's not Hitler, okay? That's somebody different. This is David. So, I mean, the things we have seen of David in this particular account that we've been dissecting for many weeks of him and Bathsheba with his subsequent cover-up is really out of character for him. Completely, if you will, out of character, which you learn about David very early in David's life. So I bring it to your attention, but we ask now, what does that mean, if anything? It simply means that at this moment, at this juncture of David's life, he became cold. He became callous to his sin. We can't find in the text anywhere where he showed grief for the death of innocent men and of Uriah. I mean, Uriah has demonstrated that he is a man of honor and integrity and of loyalty. But David, upon learning of his death, seems to have no remorse for his actions. He simply has become cold and callous to the events unfolding, continuing in the mode of cover-up and denial to it all, to the sin that was actually happening into his life. He allowed the enemy to enter. The temptation initially and throughout what we learned of David here in this account was way too much to overcome. The sin, if you will, in David's life had become a constant practice. It started with a little snapshot of a woman, a little bit of lust. It committed even further to adultery. A denial and cover-up committed murder, ultimately. The sin in David's life, listen, had become deliberate, had become intentional, and it certainly had become repetitious. The point is this. It's just not David this happens to. It can happen to any of us. That deliberate, repeated sin has certainly for David dulled his sensitivity to God's laws and other people's rights. And the same thing can happen to us if we're not careful. We can look only out for ourselves and our actions. So the application then is this, for David and for us, that the more you try to cover up a sin, the more insensitive you can become toward it. Let's say that again. That the more you try to deny and cover up a sin, any kind of action of wrongdoing in our life, the more we try to cover that up, the more insensitive we come toward it, that sin. We try to just justify it and reason it out. I mean, David's account that we're learning here of him and his actions is a warning for us. It's a lesson for us, and we need to heed the warning. Don't become hardened to sin in our lives as has happened with David. I mean, confess your own actions to God before you forget that they're sins. I mean, it's so easy to blame and justify any particular action in your life, particularly a sinful action, a wrong action. It's so easy to blame others for what we have done that we know is wrong. But we learn with David is that we must own up to it. We did it. We committed it. It's ours. You know, saying that maybe we've said, or at least we've heard, when somebody commits something of wrongdoing, 
the saying is, the devil made me do it. I do something wrong. I didn't do it. The devil made me do it. Well, that's hogwash. The devil cannot make you do anything. Now, don't get me wrong. He's going to tempt you over and over and over and over again. So many times you say, okay, I'm just going to do it. He can only tempt you. He cannot make you do it. The act is upon yourself. It's me and you who act upon the temptation given to us. It was upon David who acted upon it. The devil didn't make him do it. The lesson here is that we must own up to our actions, to our sin, to our wrongdoing. Own up to it and then confess it. Remember the words that John had wrote in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. He said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Unfortunately, John went on also to say in that same epistle in 1 John chapter 2 that we have an advocate. He says, anyone does sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. We own it. We did it. We need to confess it. The lesson from David is he didn't confess it, at least not initially. So the lesson we learn from David in this account is don't deny it. Don't, don't become callous and cold to your sin. Admit it and confess it. Because the more you try to cover up a particular action of wrongdoing, a sin, the more insensitive you become toward it. That's the first little application. So David's reaction then, as one commentary has worded as we look upon his reaction, is labeled as predictable. I've suggested it's cold, it's callous. But again, the looming question we still yet to answer is, has he gotten by with it? So we return to the text and find, no, David is not about to get by with his actions. Enter stage left, Nathan. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent David, sent, the Lord sent Nathan to David. That's it. At the close of chapter 11, in verse 27, a chapter division occurs in the story, and the author quickly reveals that God is greatly displeased with David at the end of chapter 11, and in chapter 12, he sent someone to confront him. So David's sin has not gone unnoticed. And God's instrument to let David know of his displeasure he has of him is Nathan the prophet. A quick timeout, because now we've got to expand upon who is Nathan. We begin to wonder, where did this Nathan guy come from? Who is he? So look behind me then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're introduced to Nathan. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, it says, Now when the king, that's David, lived in this house, and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king against David, David said to Nathan the prophet, there it tells us who he is. There we're introduced to Nathan. He's a prophet during the time of David as king. But 
David then said to Nathan, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So I bring that text to your attention because now we begin to see where Nathan is introduced in the storyline of David. Notice how he's introduced here as a prophet. We don't learn a lot about him. We know he's a prophet during the time of David. The contextual situation we learn about Nathan is when David is contemplating building a house for the Lord. In the verses we've read at the beginning of chapter 7, Nathan informs David to go ahead and do so. The Lord is with you. But later we find out that Nathan tells David, look, the Lord revealed to me it's not going to be you. It's going to be your son who's going to become Solomon who's going to actually build the house for the Lord. In chapter 7, we find in verses 12 and 13, a little further in the account, that Nathan informs David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's going to be Solomon. Solomon's going to be the house for, for, the, for the Lord, not David. But I tell you that so you recognize where Nathan came from in the big picture. He came from several chapters ago and second Samuel and introduces a prophet. He's a prophet, yes. A prophet during the time that David was king, but more notably for us in our story, a prophet in which God is going to use as a vessel, as an instrument to speak to David. So that's who Nathan is. So how does Nathan then confront the king? Well, he uses a parable. He uses a fable or a story. We return to chapter 12, verse 1 at the end of the of verse 1. Nathan starts his fable. He said, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up him with him and his children. He used to eat of his morsel, the lamb did, and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, stop there for a minute because most commentators suggest that Nathan's story is completely made up. It is not real. But nonetheless, it is highly effective. It is very, very useful in conveying to David that he has done wrong that his sin has not gone unnoticed. So we're about to transition on to verses 5 and 6, but notice, if you will, as we go further in the story, at David's reaction. And notice, we already know his reaction to the death of Uriah and the innocent men. But notice how his reaction now is considerably, noticeably different. Because now he gets angry. Now he gets outraged. Verse 5, David's anger. When Nathan tells him the story, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Well, Nathan very cleverly has 
completely set the stage for David. And David, if you will, I mean, David's receiving it hook, line, and sinker. I mean, he swallowed everything. And inform, Dave, Nathan's going to inform David now that he is the man. Verse 7. David has been angry with the story, the parable. He's going to have no pity. He's, so Nathan said to David, verse 7, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. So why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David's sin is completely noticed now. It was never hidden. God knew it all along. David did not confess it to any moment so far. But Nathan directly confronts him with it with the story of a rich man and a poor man. I mean, Nathan, if you will, as a prophet before the king, is being very direct with the king, bringing it all to his attention, saying, David, you're the man. You're not getting by with this. So as all that's happening, Nathan's not done speaking yet. He goes on now and says, hey, David, you've been caught, and here's what's going to happen. There's a consequence, remember, from all sin. The unconfessed yet not hidden sin in David's life is about to receive the consequence. Verse 10. Nathan continues. Now, therefore, he's speaking to David still, Nathan to David, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the son. Well, then David gets a chance to speak. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Well, then Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. You think at that moment that maybe David's freaking out? That he's thinking, oh, man, I, I did not get by with this. I tried to cover up for a long time, and, and I did everything I possibly could think of to rid myself of this whole situation that occurred. But now all of a sudden, Nathan comes in, confronts David with it all, and David must be completely freaking out. Because now, according to the text, he's thinking, I'm going to die because of this. But Nathan tells him, verse 13, dude, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. But there's more. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have early scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. You know, many people will read through the account of David and Bathsheba. Again, it starts in chapter 11, continues in chapter 12. They read through this story of the sin that occurs 
and ultimately conclude then, this isn't fair. I mean, David has sinned and erred greatly. But is it fair, is it right to take the baby, not David? I mean, people get greatly upset with this as it happens. They conclude because God is mean. He is taking the baby. He spared David. They said it's way too harsh. It's above and beyond the discipline that David should receive. Yeah, he did wrong. But what about the, why did you take the baby? This is way too harsh. Then maybe God is insensitive and mean and not loving and not compassionate. And they say the discipline that was received here for this sentence of being guilty is way too harsh. But let's slow down and think about it. I mean, who are we to tell God what form of discipline should be given to David? I mean, who are we to tell God anything about any discipline that someone should receive? I mean, the story of David's adultery with Bathsheba is indeed very tragic. I mean, as we've already discussed in previous messages, consequences of sin can unfortunately impact the lives of innocent bystanders, and it certainly does here. David and Bathsheba's baby was certainly an innocent bystander. And, and the death of this newborn is very tragic. And it, yes, it tends to make one angry as you're reading through it. But we got to think of the bigger picture, which is this. That God is offended and is angry when we sin against him. Which leads to another application that when we choose, or David chooses, or anybody chooses not to obey God, he has no other choice but to discipline. I mean, anything else would just be accepting it. When we choose not to obey, God has no other choice but to discipline. It's the same principle as you bringing up your children. If you do not discipline your children for any wrongdoing, it's acceptable. And they're going to repeat that behavior again. Breaking curfew equals punishment of grounding or taking away the car keys. Get in trouble at school. Listen to me, students. You're back in school now. Making bad grades. Expect your parents to take away your phone or the Xbox. It just happens. There's a consequence from something that happens that was wrong or bad. For example, when I was a child, I don't know, I got sick somehow. I don't even know what I was sick of now. But anyway, the doctor gave a prescription to medicine. I was supposed to take the medicine. The expectation was that I would take the medicine to get better. The only problem was I couldn't swallow pills. And it was a pill I had to take to get better. Well, somehow, some way, my mom's not here today, and she's not completely gullible. But somehow, some way, I convinced my mom the only way I could take the pill was to, you know, put it in a piece of bread and just eat the bread. Which sounds reasonable, right? I mean, in nursing homes, sometimes people can't swallow. They put like an applesauce and eat applesauce and they swallow the pill. I told mom I need bread to take the pill to swallow it to get better. That sounded reasonable. But I told her I could only do it in the bathroom, too. And she said, okay. Now, she must have felt like I was an honest, upright young man at that particular point in our life. 
And I'd like to think that maybe I was, but maybe I wasn't completely. Because what I did when I received the medicine and the bread and went into the bathroom, I would go in there and I'd eat the bread. I would take the pill, I'd put it in the toilet. I could use the bathroom, I flushed the pill down the toilet, and it was done. Okay, that was my that was my mode of operation and during the medication I was supposed to take. Only one day I forgot to flush. Mom comes in afterwards in the bathroom, and I'm away in a different room, but I can hear her, and I know every child knows they're in trouble when you hear your middle name, Curtis Wayne. Come back to this bathroom. So at this point, man, I thought, oh, what did I do? I mean, I know what I did. I'm thinking, what did I do? I walked in there, and she's looking at the toilet. She says, what is that? I mean, I'm like David. I'm caught. I can't deny it any longer. I look and said, um, that's the pill. Where's the bread? I ate the bread. Have you been doing this with your medication? <laughs> yeah, Mom, I've been doing it. Uh, I mean, yeah, unfortunately, I haven't been taking any of these pills at all. I mean, somehow I was getting better, but I wasn't taking any medication. So now is the time for the punishment. Every wrong action has a consequence, has a discipline that must receive. For me, the fly water wore out my backside. It was like the worst form of punishment I ever had. But why do we get that punishment? Why did I tell you that story? Because every time we disobey God, we should receive some form of discipline. David was no different. But remember, it tells us in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12, and in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, the Lord disciplines those he loves. I mean, he's not trying to be mean and angry and ugly. Not compassionate, not loving. He's trying to show his love for his children. Just like we would for our children when they do wrong, we love them, we want to correct the behavior. So while we're not excited about the discipline from our parents or from God, it is an act of love. It's similar application to our children that we can expect from God when he decides to discipline us. Now back to the discipline that David is about to receive here. Back to verses 10 through 14, because that's when it's handed down. I'm going to read it all again, but note that while we tend to focus on the very end of it, of the child's death, that was not the extent of the discipline that David was going to receive. Nathan told David of multiple consequences that would occur in his life of the discipline from what he had done that was wrong. In verse 10, he said, the sword shall never depart from your house. In verse 11, he said, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. He also said in verse 11, I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And of course, we got the sentence of the death of the newborn. But you look at that, we're still thinking in our minds, that's too extreme. I mean, it's pretty excessive. I mean, yeah, he did wrong, but that's like a fourfold type of discipline. Was fourfold discipline necessary? Warren Worsby answers that David's adultery with Bathsheba was a sin of passion, a sin of the moment overtook him. But his sin of having Uriah killed was a premeditated crime that was deliberate and disgraceful. The Lord judged both sins 
and David paid dearly for his lust and deceit. Listen, God repaid David in kind. And notice, if you will, the references to Deuteronomy, Exodus, and Leviticus. The comment of in kind and the scripture references is indicative of something. I mean, yeah, the discipline is severe, but what most people fail to realize is that God was essentially keeping the law that he had handed down to them. I mean, it had been established. In other words, God had already told the nation, had already exposed to everyone, all the Israelites know what will happen if they do what David had done. It's common, it's given to us in Deuteronomy, Exodus, and Leviticus. Not once is it revealed the things that will happen, but three times the consequences is given for what will happen if you despise the Lord's name in the way that David did. So then, as king, David could not escape the punishment that God had already stated in his covenant with Israel. Essentially, the law, the Torah, as it was given in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, had established four different things. Number one, it established that if the nation rebelled against God, God would slay the sons in battle. It gave secondly in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that if they despised the Lord in this manner, he would take away their children. Thirdly, it said he would take away their wives. And fourthly, he would even take the nation Israel out of its land into foreign exile. There were four forms of discipline that was laid down as the law the Torah had given. So in effect, all these forms of discipline occurred in David's life. It all played out fourfold. David's Bathsheba, I mean, the baby died. I mean, but not only did the baby die between David and Bathsheba, but David's other sons, such as Amnon and Absalom and Adonijah, would all be slain as well. You don't hear a lot about it, but David had a beautiful daughter named Tamar. She was raped by her half-brother. David's concubines were humiliated publicly by Absalom when he captured the kingdom from his father. It's a house a palace, a kingdom completely divided. Absalom, who we just referred to, rebelled against his father. I mean, subsequently, David was forced to flee Jerusalem and live in the wilderness. All these things that Nathan had told David would occur did happen. It may seem extreme, it may seem unnecessary, but the law had been given and the Lord carried it out. It's just like you telling your children, if you're late coming home from from, from a, a night out in town, if you do nothing, he knows he can get by with it again. If you tell him what will happen in advance and you carry through with it, you did exactly as God had told David he would do. So, for the rest of David's lifetime, unfortunately, he experienced one tragedy after another, either in his family or in his kingdom. For the rest of his lifetime, because of the relationship he had with Bathsheba. So listen to this. What a price he paid then for those few moments of passion with his neighbor's wife. You gotta ask yourself ultimately if your David, was it worth it? 
Or any time that we commit sin and receive some discipline, was it worth it? I mean, some of David had known the painful consequences of his sin in advance, he might not have pursued the pleasures of the moment. There's not much else to say as we march to the conclusion of everything we've been talking about with David and Bathsheba except to repeat the underlying theme in the account we stated many weeks ago. And here it comes back into full play again that sin, every sin, every wrong action in our lives always bears, always will have a consequence. All sin has a consequence. I mean, as humans, we fail. We fall to the enemy. He makes something attractive to us, allures us in, entices, and we fall. Which means we know this, so we try to have messages like this to equip us to the enemy's enticement and to say no. But the fact of the matter is we ultimately fall. That's not giving us an excuse. That's just seeing the reality of it all. So as we look at the text and come to conclude, it reveals that we have to confess. I mean, that's the lesson we can learn from David here, is that unconfessed sin can linger for years. We seem for David has a tendency to even get worse and worse until we become immune to it, become callous and cold to the wrong actions we have. So what we learn here is do not let your heart become hard and cold and callous. Recognize wrongdoing. We've got to cry out to God and confess. We've got to ask God to cleanse us of our sins and of our inequities. That's what we learned from David. We don't need to continue to go and cover it more and deny it. We did wrong, confess it, and God will forgive us. If David had only done that. But just to complete the picture of it all in the finale of the story of David, we could not end it all without recognizing that David did come to a time of confession. He did precisely what he tells us to do through his actions and through the lesson we learned from David. I mean, he precisely does what we're suggesting we must do to come clean and confess. After all this happened, David penned and wrote Psalm 51. Listen, if you will, to Psalm 51 for a portion of it. Of course, it tells us the Psalm of David when Nathan, we know the prophet, went to him. But here's David's words as he's had this now moment to transpire the consequences handed down. I mean, he's had the sin, the cover up, the murder, all that. David now confesses and recognizes and says in verse 1 of Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my inequity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David comes to recognize he has done wrong and he needs to be cleansed. Psalm 51, verse 7, he continues. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. 
Hide your face from my sins and blot out my inequities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. There's a lot to learn from the actions of David, but there's a lot to learn from any of our actions. We have sin. We need to confess it. We need to admit it. And fortunately for all of us, for David, for any person, we have a merciful, loving God who is willing and ready to forgive us. God knows our inequities. He's just waiting for us to come to him, admit it, and confess it. But fortunately, we have a God who is willing to forgive us as the east is from the west. Psalms 103.12 As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Simply said this then. Confess your sin today. Confess, be cleansed, and be restored. That's what we learn from David. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this message, this series we've been having on David, with his actions, Lord, to cover up the denial, the murder. We see how, Lord, unconfessed sin can get worse and worse in David's life as it is in ours. So today, Lord, we come before you in the time of confession. Lord, I corporately pray together for all of us here today as a church body to forgive us for inequities, forgive us for our sins, forgive us, Lord, for our wrongdoings. Lord, we're adults. We know when we do wrong, so we ask, Lord, for forgiveness for that. Cleanse us, Lord, from our inequities. As David said, purge us, Lord, from these things. Restore ourselves today as righteous before you, Lord. Let's be grateful that we have an advocate, Jesus, your one and only Son, who took our sins. Lord, let us today come clean before you. As a church, Lord, we confess our sins to you today. And we thank you for restoring us. Let us now go into a deeper loving relationship with you, Lord, as we leave here today being cleansed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand with me for a moment as we do to receive the word, to maybe do a little reflection. As you're standing with me this morning, maybe it's time for you to maybe make a confession. You don't have to confess to me. I'm not asking you to even do so. As you're standing there, maybe it's time to enter into the word of prayer, and maybe you say, God, forgive me where I have failed. Forgive me for a particular action or sin. So as you begin to bow your head now, maybe that's what we need to do. Maybe we just need to come to a moment of cleansing and for God to lead us into a restoration to be with him because we stand before him as a filthy, dirty rag because we have sin. So go ahead and bow your head with me. We're going to have some soft music to play as we come into a time of confession.